So, uh, I hope you noticed in the music, it was about the greatness of a Savior. Uh, A Savior we all desperately need. The greatness of God's grace, mercy, and love. Um, Because we've been looking at, as you're aware, the, the greatness of God's wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror when He judges rebellious creatures. So it's important for us, and this is why I keep saying that we're driving to the cross, we're driving to the foot of Jesus Christ, um, because God is a God of fierce wrath. Um, And that's, as I said to you last week, uh, some people like to contrast, falsely of course, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. He's the same God. Before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus says. Um, Same God, same triune God. But actually in the New Testament, it gets worse. The the judgments of God in the Old Testament appear to be temporal. It seems like, well, he wiped them out, it's over. Jesus tells us it ain't over. Jesus tells us the wrath of God is never over. Over. It will never be over. Um, it's interesting, I think, that <clears throat> we don't get this word from a prophet or an apostle. We get this word from the Son. Jesus Christ speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, if you excise Jesus' words, um, we have a huge problem in understanding what hell is and what it's like. But he speaks quite a bit about it. So my point is this. Don't don't ever let anybody talk nonsense about the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Obviously, biblically literate people know it's the same God. But the judgment gets worse in the New Testament. In the sense that we fully understand what it means for an infinite God to pour out eternal wrath on those who are in rebellion against him. I I like the word inaugural. It's inaugural. The the temporal judgment is simply inaugural. It's the the, the initial and introductory phase of God's judgment. You know, the the guys in Revelation, I think it's six, that cry out that uh, the mountains would fall on them before the angry lamb, as if death is some salvation. Death will be no salvation. Death is the beginning of the worst possible judgment that can be imagined. And Jesus Christ talks a lot about it. And we'll be looking at some of His words this morning. And let me say this, as we've said throughout the series, when you you take a hard look at eternal conscious judgment in hell, which is clearly what the Bible teaches, I know there are a lot of naysayers, a lot of editors, a lot of marketers with respect to this truth, But these are the clear words of Jesus. Um, We really do, don't we? We really do have to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. This is one reason even the church, by and large, what is called the church, rejects the eternal conscious punishment of sinners in hell. Because they can't fit it into their finite mind. They can't fit it in their mind. This is a failure, as we've been saying all the way through the the series. This is a failure 
of reckoning with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. And I think it's important for us to maybe revisit that thought as we get into this new message. So it's true, isn't it? Um, We live on the edge of eternity. I know most of you never think about this. Some of you haven't thought about it in a long, long time. You're one heartbeat away. You're one heartbeat away. You're one brain wave away from looking into the eyes of Yahweh. Just one. My point is, this message, this series, and this message matters more than anything else you have going on right now. You need to give close attention to what Jesus Christ in particular has to say, and the Bible in general has to say about eternal conscious punishment. I know the false church has jettisoned this teaching from, uh, from, its, uh, from its doctrine, but every true church is, is compelled to preach all the Bible, not just the parts that go down easy. So, yes, we are one heartbeat away. God is unapologetic. We've seen it all the way through the series. He does not apologize for His judgment. He does not apologize for wrath. He does not apologize for vengeance and recompense. He doesn't apologize. He tells us it's coming. And one thing you can count on, if God says it, it's coming. He's not shy in talking about this. We've seen it all the way through the series. He said, by this, Men will know I am God. They'll know I'm God the day I come in wrath. They'll know I'm God. He continues to say that repeatedly. He says it over and over and over again. So, we understand Old Testament judgment and what we see on the pages, this temporal kind of judgment, it's a faint glimmer of what's in store for those who remain in rebellion against Jesus Christ. Okay? It's just a faint glimmer. All that we've seen thus far, it's a faint glimmer. God's judgment is eternal. You know what it means, but I'll just help you out. There's no end. Now, this is a huge thought. This will blow up your brain if you try to think about it. It's timeless, it's limitless, it's boundless, it's unceasing. God's wrath never stops being poured out, ever, if we're Bible believers. This is what the Bible clearly says to us. And as I said earlier, you have to think about it. God uses the Son to bring the bulk of this teaching. Not a prophet, not an apostle, the Son is bringing it. The second member of the Trinity is bringing it. Now, you can discount it if you want. I counsel against it. This is God incarnate speaking, by and large, as we look at this doctrine. And Jesus was quite clear. Provoked holiness knows no bounds. Again, it is eternal. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy quote to you, um, but I want you to hear it. It had a huge impact on me many years ago. Uh, It's from Jonathan Edwards, famous um, 18th century American theologian. Just bear with me. Just listen. 
He's talking about Revelation 19.15, which is talking about the fierce wrath of God. Revelation, this is where his comment is coming from, Revelation 19.15. Edward says, It would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness of God's wrath for just one moment, but you must suffer uh, for all eternity. He's obviously talking about the damned. You will know without question that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with the almighty merciless vengeance. You will absolutely lose all hope of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. And when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know everything you have suffered is but a pinprick to what remains. Your punishment will be infinite. Email me, I'll send you my notes. I would love for you to have that quote. This is what you deserve. This is what I deserve. Again, we're coming to the cross. We won't get that because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our behalf. Yes, this doctrine, it's the most hated doctrine and uh, all the professing church. Um, it's ignored. It's qualified. It's edited. It's redacted. But it's indispensable. Why is it indispensable? Why is it indispensable that we understand the depth, as best we can with finite minds, the depth of the wrath and fierceness of God's vengeance. Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's important. Without a deep understanding of this doctrine, and I'm going to read a few things to you, we will not even begin to get some limited sense of how holy God is. Hell is a commentary on how holy God is, okay? And I'll make that connection a little more strongly later. It's just a commentary on how holy God is. Consequently, we, if we have a, a low view of hell, it will unavoidably uh, diminish our depth of worship and our praise of our Savior who has saved us from this dire consequence. Secondly, we'll never regard our sin as we ought. First, we won't understand the holiness of God. Second, we won't understand how heinous our sin is. Hell is a commentary on how heinous your sin is. That's what it's a commentary on. God and your sin. And I know we've talked about this. Many, many folks, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. There are no good persons. In, uh, from a biblical perspective, there are no good persons. We talked about, was it last week or the week before? If you've ever told a white lie, you'll go to hell for it. Because that's how holy God is. That's how heinous your sin is. So this is, hell is an important doctrine. I remember when I first, first preached on hell years and years ago, I, I still remember the takeaway for me was, was, just, was, was just worship. It was worship of God. God gets bigger, I get smaller. This is always good. This is always good for us. The third reason this doctrine is important for us, we have no concept of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, lest we have a deep understanding of what we really deserve. 
So, a biblical understanding of hell is important. Why? So we have a deep understanding of who God is, a deep understanding of, about our sin, and a deep understanding about our Savior and the cross. And if you have a diminished view of hell, if you disregard this doctrine or dispense with it, yeah, you, you can't even begin to understand. We, we, we can't fully understand with our finite minds. But as we seek to try to grasp what's being said to us in Scripture, it helps us relate to these other truths. So, uh, a view of God, a view of our worship, a view of our sin, and a view of the cross. Again, the doctrine of hell reminds us that we must reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Yes, most churches and denominations don't talk about this anymore, but shame on them. They'll have to answer to Yahweh about that. Um, it's, it's abysmal. Um, I'm not sure what is the appropriate word. It's an insult to God that most of what is called His church today will not speak about Him in His fullness. As we've talked about in this series, many, many churches, it's a one-note, they're one-note churches. God is just love. And yes, He is. He is love. But He's not just love. Words matter. They mean what they mean. And if we read our Bibles with only average comprehension skills, we clearly understand what Jesus is saying. While your average professed Christian in the 21st century does not like a hellfire preacher, and they will go to great pains to avoid a hellfire preacher, can I say to you, Jesus Christ was one. He is one. He was one. So if you don't like hellfire preaching, this is a huge commentary on your view of Jesus Christ because he just kept talking about it. He just kept talking about it. Just briefly, in a very broad stroke, Jesus said hell is real, it is eternal, it is terrible, it is deserved, and once you're there, it is inescapable. So here are the nine specific teachings of Jesus Christ regarding, regarding hell. Jesus Christ said, It's a place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 42. Jesus said, it's, it's a place that is a furnace of fire. Matthew 13, 50. Jesus said, Hell is outer darkness. Matthew 25, 30. Jesus said, Hell is eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus said, Hell is eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46. Jesus said, hell is an unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43. Jesus said, hell is a place where the worm does not die, Mark 9, 44, 46, and 48. Jesus said, hell is torment and agony with a fixed chasm, preventing escape, Luke 16, 23 through 25 and 26. Lastly, Jesus says, hell is a place where everyone will be salted with fire, Mark 9, 49. This is, this is the Son of God. These are the red words. Embedded in all of these words, we hear this. I'm just going to give you a summary of some of the things that we're hearing.
Hell is a place of darkness, rage, despair, banishment, separation, loneliness, deprivation, loss, suffering, decay, distress, guilt, pressure, affliction, anguish, suffering, confinement, contempt, wretchedness, misery, shame, hopelessness, fire, pain, curse, ruin, torment, agony, and horror, etc., etc., etc. It's why I read, it's why I read the psalm that, that I, I read at the beginning. Moses says, who understands the power of your anger? Nobody understands. And on the far side of a billion eternities, we'll still be trying to understand the fullness of God's wrath. And the depth of his grace and mercy and love shown to the occupants of heaven. Beloved, we've been saying this all the way through the series. You are supposed to tremble. You call yourself a Christian? Hey, I know Jesus used the word friend. I get it. There's a right context for that. But there's a context for you and I to be humble, contrite, and to tremble before this great God. You know, as Christians, we get to tremble with the light, right? Now, we know the unbeliever will tremble forever in terror. We tremble with the light. We've been saved from that. We shouldn't have been. We didn't deserve to have been, but we are. Why does God love his people? What does he say in the Old Testament? What did he tell the Jews? I have loved you. Why? Why? Anybody know? Why? I think it's in Jeremiah. What did he say? I love you because what? I love you because I love you. There is no reason. You don't deserve to be loved. He just set his heart on you. It was a sovereign decision of God. Listen, you want to learn how to worship God? Doctrine. Doctrine. Dive deep into the truths of the Bible. So we have this urgently important question before the modern church. If Jesus is so painstakingly clear about the reality and nature of hell, why does your average pulpit never mention it? Well, we know why, don't we? More people will come if we don't talk about this. I know that sounds bad, but let's be honest. It's the truth. Most people will not hear what God has to say about himself. They will not hear it. This is why the world is full of pseudo-denominations and pseudo-Christians. They like the good part and they hate this part. We don't want that. We're not going to stand for that. We will not hear that. Tickle my ears. Pet me, stroke me. This is where we are in the modern church, by and large. Can you imagine the insult to Yahweh? <laughs> that his church, or they, they call themselves by his name, but they are embarrassed of him. They will not preach what he has clearly said about himself. So it's a curious thing, right? We are called Christians a derivative of the name of Christ. And yet we can't bring ourselves to repeat his very clear words about how he judges rebels. It's interesting that the phrase Jesus used most often to describe the sinner in hell is that of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what, what, what's, why the weeping? Well, of course, we get that. Why the weeping? Obviously, the, the occupant of hell is 
consumed with self-pity. He's consumed with it. There is no escape. There is no escape forever. These are not tears of repentance. You guys have been, some of you have been exposed to the thing, the purgatory nonsense. This is not biblical. Hell is not redemptive. Hell is not, you're not sent to hell so you can repent. It's too late. It's over. You don't get to repent in hell. Hell is not redemptive. Hell is punitive. Only punitive. These are not tears of repentance. These are tears of self-pity. Why gnashing of teeth? Um, obviously, this is evidence of, of the pain of the occupant of hell, but it's also rage. Why rage? Because the occupant of hell hates God with every fiber of his being. Now, Romans 1 tells us that the rebel hates God now. Now, he doesn't normally talk about it, but it's in his deeds. It's in his life. You heard me read the Revelation text. You'll be judged by your deeds. If you're not in Christ, you're judged by your deeds. Which is a, a anyone who's biblically literate understands this is a fearful thing. I have been guilty of telling a white lie and much worse. There's no confusion here. I should go to hell forever. There's no confusion. Why rage? Well, obviously there's a, I'm sure there's a keen self-loathing in hell and a hatred of everyone else there. But again, principally, the occupant of hell is hating God. You know, C.S. Lewis makes this point, makes this point. He says that the damned are successful rebels to the end, the doors of hell being locked on the inside. You know what he's, you know what he's saying? He's saying even though people would be desperate to come out of hell, there's only one way to come out of hell, which this is theoretical. Um, once you're there, you're there. But the, if, if the, uh, if the uh, what's the word I want? If the condition for coming out of hell was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, they can't come out. They hate Him. And every second in hell, they hate Him all the more. The hate never stops. Hell gives us a clear picture of what's going on in natural man's heart all the time. It's always rebellion. It's always rebellion. It's never not rebellion. There's another kind of rage in hell. Who knows what it is? What if I tell you God's omnipresent? Does that help? God's in hell. By self-description, by biblical revelation, He cannot not be there. He is omnipresent. King David told us that if He makes His bed in hell, that's a New King James Version translation, Psalm 139, 8, God is there. He cannot not be there. Again, He is omnipresent. Roughly 20 different passages in both the Old and New Testaments refer to fire in describing hell. And fire is a recurring phenomenon in the manifest presence of God. In His omnipresence and in His fiery veracity, God is there. Okay, we have to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. We have to reckon with it. And if we need to, we tremble. And I, I listen, if you never tremble, there's something wrong. That's all I can say to you. 
You're not looking at Yahweh. The unbeliever must tremble with dread and fear. The believer will ultimately tremble with delight. Nobody yawns at Yahweh, okay? No yawning. No yawning at Yahweh. Some of you may struggle with that. Well, what? God's in hell? Revelation 14.10. It says that those in hell will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of what? The Lamb. In the presence of the holy angels, it actually says, and the Lamb. I know that some of you have heard in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, and you may have not fully understood what's being said there. A lot of the ways, uh, one way that some preachers like to talk about it is they like to say, well, um, we'll be separated from God forever. They don't actually act, talk, use the word hell or eternal conscious punishment, but they'll say we'll be separated from God forever. Again, that's 2 Thessalonians um, 1.9. But separation is, is not in relation to distance. It's separation in relation to alienation. Okay? It's not that the occupant of hell doesn't know God is there in the fierceness of his wrath. He certainly does. Okay? So don't be confused. A lot of people are confused by that, about, uh, by, by 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Separation, again, it's not in terms of distance. It's in terms of relationships. I love, I love what um, Charles Spurgeon said. He says, It seems more a wonder to meet God in hell than in heaven, but he is the bliss of one and the terror of the other. One thing I like to say, especially when I'm talking to an atheist or agnostic, I say, you know what? There won't be, you got, there'll be no atheist or agnostic in hell. You can't be an atheist in hell. You can't be an agnostic in hell. You will see the fierce wrath of the presence of the Lamb forever. Forever. So, words, grammar, context matters. I like what Francis Chan said about hard doctrines. He said, you know, you just have to read the Bible like an eight-year-old without any personal agenda or ideological clutter. So I'm going to invite you to hear these texts. Just, hey, if you want my notes, I'll send them to you. Just sit back and listen. I want you to hear these texts and be an eight-year-old. Just hear what you hear, right? Don't import what some priest told you or what some patriarch told you or what some preacher told you. Um, hear these words regarding eternal conscious punishment. Daniel 12, 2, Old Testament. Many of those who sleep dead, those who are dead, in the dust of the ground will awake. They will awake to everlasting life, but others will awake to everlasting contempt. Mark 9, 42 to 48. Hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what I'm trying to do is convey to you what, how the Bible is speaking about eternal conscious punishment. It never stops. This is what I want you to glean from these texts. Matthew 8, 18. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet than to be cast into the eternal fire. Thessalonians 1.9, there shall be punished uh, 
they shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Now, you just don't use that descriptive term, right? You don't use the descriptive term everlasting destruction. Now, if you're just talking simply about destruction, that's one thing. We're talking about everlasting destruction that never ends. Jude 7, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Um, they shall undergo the punishment of eternal fire. So let's say you're an eight-year-old and you're still not sure. Here are a couple more texts. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. If anyone worships the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's a constant. And they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20, 10, 14, and 15. The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the strongest possible um, way to communicate in the Greek eternity. This is what John is saying. This is eternal this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In the unlikely event, our eight-year-old is not fully convinced this passage ends all legitimate debate. There's really no debate at this point, but this passage puts a period on it. Most of you are aware of it. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Jesus says, depart from me, you accursed ones, these are the, this is rebellious mankind, these are the goats, into the eternal fire, which has been pre prepared for the devil and the angels. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life. So why is that a, a drop-dead argument? Why is that a drop-dead argument? Did you notice? Okay, the same Greek word is used to describe punishment as the same Greek word is used to describe life. Eternal punishment is linear, or shall we say one-to-one. -one. It's comparable to eternal life. It's the same Greek word. There's no place to run or hide here. If eternal life is about animation and being in existence forever, which we understand that's what it means, eternal punishment has to be the same. Again, it's just the rules of grammar. It's just logic. It's just vocabulary. It's just syntax. There's nowhere to run here. No one can diminish. No one can deal honestly with Matthew 25 and then diminish the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. You cannot explain it away. So there is no legitimate debate here. All there is is a denial of God's word, which again, is just, it's, it's always this echo of blasphemy, right? Anytime you reject something in the Word of God, it's just blasphemous. We're in a backhanded way saying, I don't think God said this, and He, he wasn't God enough to keep this, this out of His Word. Some man stuck this in there. So you blasphemed in two ways. First, you haven't believed Him. Then you, you uh, cast aspersions on His Word. There's a lot at stake here for anybody who deals with the Word of God. Interestingly, some of you are aware that Hebrews refers to eternal judgment as, anybody remember? Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, um, refers to eternal judgment as an elementary teaching. This is not rocket science. These are the words of God. The clear, unambiguous, 
words of God. Yes, this is a weighty doctrine. Yes, it crushes our finite capacities to even begin to comprehend all that it portends. Certainly, Christians can and do struggle with this mammoth truth. But the true Christian never dares question the right righteousness of God in the face of the overwhelming scope of this doctrine. Never. You know, I've heard preachers, shall I say men who presume to be preachers, invite their congregations to question God. Well, I think those men, men are fools. Um, I think they're false teachers. Do not question the word I, I don't, I'm not saying don't struggle with it. If you need to struggle, struggle. Man, I've struggled, with, I've struggled for years with some texts. I think I told you a few weeks ago, I struggled for 10 years with Romans 9. Struggle, but don't deny and don't ignore. Struggle's good. It's fine. It's, it, God uses it. But God help you if you judge you stand in judgment over the word of God. I want to say this, just because a doctrine seems to be beyond us, it doesn't mean that it's not divinely ordained. Again, we're talking about the legitimacy of the word of God. I would just ask you, what would you expect? What kind of wrath would you expect from a thrice holy God? Something that would, the human mind could more easily accommodate? A damnation more in keeping with human sensibilities. This is the, one of the biggest problems of mankind in general and much of the modern church um, in particular. Remember what God says through the, through the psalmist? I think it's through David, and I'm sorry I didn't make a notation of the text. It's the gravest miscalculation a human being can make. David says, God says through David, you thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. You thought that I didn't worry about a white lie. You thought a white lie didn't mean much to me. You don't see that that's rebellion against me personally. You don't see that. You don't see that I can't stand the stench of your sin before me. I can't look at it. I hate it. I will judge it forever. You thought I was just like you. It's a big deal, beloved. You know, that's what a lot of people do. They bring God down. They get him down in, in, a, in, a, in a little box where they can manage him. Where they think they can understand him. So, one of the most uh, common objections to eternal conscious punishment is that is the math. How can we be subject to eternal punishment for a lifetime, 72.6 years of sin? That's, I looked it up. That's the worldwide average life expectancy. You probably know these answers. They're just logically necessary. Why? Because our sin's against an infinite God. That's enough. Your sin's against an infinite, eternal God. Consequently, the judgment for that sin will be infinite and eternal. Secondly, as I alluded to earlier, the occupant of hell never stops sinning. He just never stops. He sins forever. 
He just keeps hating God. He hated God in this life and he hates God in the next life. And he only keeps hating God more and more and more and more. He's always guilty of sin. You know? These are just, these are not hard to understand. Actually, one theologian pointed out if hell hadn't been explicitly revealed in the, in the Bible, we would have to deduce that eternal conscious punishment was necessary because God is who God is. I always thought that that was powerful and interesting. So quickly, um, as some of you know, to blunt the harsh words of Jesus Christ regarding hell, false teachers have come up with several prominent attempts to mitigate that or edit that or ignore that or reinterpret that. Universalism, all mankind is saved. Universalism, number one. Number two, universal restoration. At death or after some appropriate time in hell, the resurrected body and soul are redeemed. Number three, annihilationism. At death or after some appropriate time in hell, the resurrected body and soul go out of existence. There's one problem with these three um, proposals. Who knows what it is? It calls Christ a liar. Either Jesus is an incompetent theologian or he is a liar. That's the only problem I have with these three propositions. But for me, this is a huge problem. They've just called the second member of the Trinity a liar. You can't get around it. If you subscribe to one of those three doctrines or something like that, you have just impugned the Son of God. Listen, a biblically accurate view of hell is a big deal for more than one reason. Simply because Jesus talked about it repeatedly. So let's not be guilty of impugning the Lord Jesus. And then some people, you hear this, you hear this symbolism conjecture, right? Well, Fire is a symbol. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. But, you know, this doesn't really work out too well. You know, when in human language is the symbol ever more than the reality? This doesn't make any sense to the thinking person. And I've always loved what my spiritual mentor said uh, some years ago about the horrors of hell, uh, the fact that they can't be overstated. He says... He says, what the Bible is doing is holding up signposts to something worse. The Bible is holding up a signpost to something worse. I love that he said that. That helped me a lot. And then he said this, what if the true hell can only be experienced and not described? I think this is absolutely true. If you, you know, to get the ambiance off the page of what's being said in Scripture, you realize that this is beyond description. These are merely descriptive terms for what is beyond description. I think that is very well said. You guys know 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart conceived all that God has prepared for those who love Him. This is obviously equally and terrifyingly true for those who hate Him. The reverse would be true for those who hate Him. So, I want to say this. In one sense... Apprehending the biblical teaching on hell comes down to our focus. If you're looking at yourself in the mirror, you will, you will shy away from it. If you're looking at your family and your loved ones and your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues, you, you, if that's principally what you're looking at, you will, you will uh, naturally 
you will naturally turn away from the biblical teaching. You'll just think, well, it can't be warranted. It can't be just. Eternal conscious punishment? But you know how you receive this doctrine? You look at the biblical God. If you make it a, a habit in your life to look at the biblical God, you realize what that theologian said. It's necessary. It has to be. If hell hasn't been revealed, we would have to surmise or, or make conjecture that it's there because God is so holy and I'm not. So, what are you looking at? Who are you looking at? If we are looking at Yahweh, um, the thrice holy God of the Bible, we will receive his teaching on hell. And therefore, if Jesus said that eternal conscious punishment is just and right and necessary, then we would say these kinds of things. How infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? I've already made this point, but I'm making it again. How infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? Yes, it is infinitely incomprehensible. You have no idea. Tremble if you need to. If Jesus said that eternal hell is just, right, and necessary, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat God's glory with indifference or contempt. How infinitely blameworthy it is. And I would go on to say, and to play pseudo-Christianity with Him, which we, we understand biblically, Old Testament, New Testament. He hates religion. If Jesus said that eternal hell is just, right, and necessary, what infinite glory and purity God must possess that everlasting suffering is the fitting punishment for dishonoring and disobeying Him. And then lastly, which we've already alluded to, what a stunning, shocking, amazing, unbelievable thing Jesus Christ has done in taking my sin and God's wrath upon Himself. This is what God would have us to take away as we look at this doctrine in Scripture. Let's close this way. I'm going to turn over to Luke 16. Luke 16. It's a familiar text to most of you. Luke 16. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 22. Jesus tells us that there's a rich man and a poor man. I'm going to pick up in Luke 16, verse 22. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, uh, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, re they will repent. But he said to, to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. What is Jesus's point here? What's the overriding point here? You better hear the word of God. You better hear the word of God. Jesus said, they've got, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear the word of God. Let them hear it. Very simple. Hear the word of God. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. Beloved, when we talk about these kinds of things, I invite you, as I have invited you throughout the series, if you've never seriously reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God and that hell is necessary because He is so holy, then I invite you to get alone with the Lord and work on that with Him. And so I'll say this, and I'm done. To every person who will not repent, who will not hear the Word of God, and who will not repent of their sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to every person like that who is indifferent toward the Son, who insults Messiah with pseudo-Christianity, who despises Jesus in both word and deed every day of, they, every day of their lives, I'll just quote A.W. Pink, famous 20th century English theologian. I love this sentence in that it's so appropriate. You don't want to hear God's word? You don't want to run to the Savior? You don't need the cross? You don't need the atonement? Okay. Why then should you not suffer wrath as great as the grace and love which you have rejected? That is a powerful sentence. You don't want Christ? You won't bow the knee? Then why? Why then should you not suffer wrath as great as the grace and love which you have rejected? For you most certainly will. And let me close with this. God says, and I want you to hear this. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, exclamation point. Why then will you die? These are the words of God, Ezekiel 33, 11. Let's pray together.